Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. 2022 interview. We take a look at the top storylines our Pro-Life Weekly team has been tracking this year. With the fall of Roe versus Wade taking place in June, the fight for the lives of little ones was at the forefront of virtually every political debate. Attorney General Lynn Fitch continues to be one of the many state leaders who want to carry our movement to even more victories. The violent surge of abortion drugs. Thanks to President Joe Biden, the mass production and sale of deadly abortion drugs continued here in the U.S. The way this story has developed throughout the year has made it clear that getting these drugs off the market is still very much an uphill battle. We look back on an important discussion with Tessa Longbonds. And speaking of the president, we give you a roundup of the ways Joe Biden has betrayed his role as second Catholic president by propping up the abortion lobby time and time again. In the name of democracy, he has abandoned every chief tenant of his own faith. On June 24th of this year, the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, a majority of the Supreme Court justices ruled to overturn Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs v. Jackson Whole Women's Health Organization case. Pro-life Americans continue to work towards the complete ending of abortion in the U.S., and now just six months after the Dobbs decision, nearly half of states have enacted laws that ban essentially all abortions. But we still face major battles in overcoming brutal policies in some states which have become abortion meccas. Attorney General Lynn Fitch, who defended the right to life in the Dobbs case, shared her immediate thoughts with us that week. And we're now joined by Attorney General Lynn Fitch herself, who represented Mississippi's pro-life law at the Supreme Court. General Fitch, thank you so much for joining us. For so long, our hands have been tied due to Roe versus Wade, yet the people of your state chose to defy the extreme status quo of abortion on demand. And now, today, that has led to all 50 states being free to pass pro-life laws of their choosing. What does this moment mean to you? Well, it's incredible, it's historic, and it's a brand new day for the American people. We just turned the page on Roe v. Wade. I mean, what a victory for women and children and the court itself. And I, I truly commend the court for restoring constitutional principle and returning this very important decision back to the people of each respective state. Uh, and now we can really get on with the job of empowering women and promoting life. Right. And in the few days since Roe has been struck down, at least 12 states have already enacted laws ending abortion. Many more are expected to follow in the coming days, including your state of Mississippi. So what's the plan in Mississippi and what does all of this momentum across the country signal to you? Well, again, it's a very critical time for all of us. Now, I did certify our trigger law, which will go into effect July the 7th, sent that information to the Secretary of State. Also sent written notice to the Jackson uh, Women's Healthcare Organization, notifying them of my certification. Very exciting that soon in Mississippi, pretty much all abortions will be illegal. So many babies will be saved. And you said that now that the Supreme Court has spoken definitively and ended row, that the challenge falls to us, the American people, to come alongside mothers and their young children, their babies. What policies can be implemented in the states to really restore a pro-family culture? Well, it really does. And, you know, in our brief and in our argument, we talked about we had to have a holistic discussion about empowering women 
and promoting life. It wasn't an either or. And so 50 years had gone by and we'd had this special set of rules that applied to abortion. And now we don't. And so now we need to step up and be engaged in truly empowering women. So that means we need to do a lot of things. We need to drive towards solutions where first and foremost, we talk about childcare. We make it affordable and quality childcare for women. Talk about how we can uh, enforce child support payments because for far too long, women have borne the financial burden. We've certainly got to talk about um, the streamlining the adoption process and reevaluating the foster care system and connecting these children with loving families more quickly because they're the families are there and they can help these children thrive with the love and compassion. Um, we've got to talk about different options for um, the workplace environment, like flexibility and maternity and paternity leave. And then also we've got to provide that safety net to our crisis, pregnancy crisis resource centers. We've got to have the resources and tools. So these are some challenges, but they're great opportunities and we're ready to take on this job. I mean, it will it'll involve everyone doing that, um, private, public, everyone stepping up. And so it is an exciting time. It is. And it sounds like you've got a great plan to get things moving. And Attorney General, what is your message to women who don't agree with us, who might be resistant to this post-row world and all of the help that we have to offer them? Well, in this post-row world, we're looking at it from a different perspective. We are truly there to empower women. Again, 50 years ago, you didn't have the choice, um, you either or, and so now you do. And so we wanna help women have their fullest dreams come true, their professional lives, and yet be that outstanding, compassionate, loving mother that they'd like to do as well. So wonderful, and it's such an exciting time for our movement. Much of it is attributed to you and your team. So thank you so much, Attorney General Lynn Fitch of Mississippi. God bless you. Thank you so much, and we truly appreciate my team, myself, the prayers, and the support. Of course, we're always right behind you. Towards the end of this year, the pivotal midterm elections took place on November 8th and gave us a taste of what to expect in the upcoming 2024 election season. Republicans lost the Senate but won the House, ensuring that self-proclaimed Catholic Nancy Pelosi would not continue to wield the Speaker's gavel. This gives Republicans an opportunity to make it much harder for Democrats to pursue their agenda, which includes nullifying all state-level pro-life laws and erasing the fact that marriage is between one man and one woman, among other things. Amber Athey joined us as election results poured in for her take on what this could mean for the future. Joining me now is Amber Athey, Washington editor for The Spectator and senior fellow at the Steamboat Institute for Analysis. Amber, thanks for joining me. What do you make of the results that we've seen so far, especially when you take into account how charged the issue of abortion was throughout this whole campaign cycle? Yeah, I think, frankly, everyone on the GOP side really underestimated just how galvanizing of an issue that this was. Because when we saw polls before the election, we saw that voters consistently did not rank abortion as a top five issue. They rated things like inflation, the economy, crime, and even the border ahead of abortion. However, when you look at the exit polls from Election Day and the early voting, of course, as well, abortion was second only to inflation. So what that tells us is that 
the left and the pro-abortion activists are incredibly motivated by abortion, and that led them to show up at the polls far more than anyone expected. Yeah, and we were, of course, tracking what was happening in battleground states very closely over the past few weeks. And while pro-life candidates succeeded in states like Ohio and Florida, they failed to pull out a win in Pennsylvania, and Arizona is looking pretty iffy at this point as well. What do you think made the difference between winning and losing here when it comes to the Senate? Well, I think part of it is just candidate selection. Um, for what it's worth, I think, I think Blake Masters is a great candidate, and it looks like he still potentially has a chance. But uh, Dr. Oz, I think, was not the best choice for Pennsylvania. And when you look at the states where Republicans did secure the Senate, they really did just run very effective campaigns. Um, I was on the ground in North Carolina following the Ted Budd campaign, and he was laser-focused on issues of inflation and crime. And so even though his opponent, Sherry Beasley, did try to hit him for his pro-life stance, she also had a really horrible crime record from her time on the North Carolina Supreme Court. So, you know, every race is a little bit different, and it can be hard to extrapolate um, lessons from a southern state, for example, to a Rust Belt state. Um, but I think overall, the biggest factor that uh, hurt Republicans in some of these swing states is the share of the vote that was coming from Gen Z. I mean, youth voters really outpaced everyone's expectations, and they broke 70% towards Democrats. Um, so it's really hard to overcome something like that. And that's not something that any pollster on the GOP or Democratic side anticipated happening because it's so ahistorical. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, there's a lot of discussions about this among conservatives. I want to get your thoughts. Overall, do you think championing a pro-life position in this cycle was a liability or an asset? Or did it really just depend on where you were running, as you're, as you're alluding to? Right. I think it depended on where you were running, because if you compare uh, Michigan to Kentucky, for example, both of those states had abortion measures on the ballot. In Kentucky, it was uh, voting for a constitutional amendment that would say that women did not have a right to an abortion. And that failed just by 51 percent, whereas in Michigan, a, a pro-life measure failed way more significantly. And that's just because the electorate happens to hold much different views on that issue. Um, Kentucky is a lot more religious than Michigan. And so every state's a little bit different on abortion. Every candidate has a slightly different message. It, but just this environment, I think, with Roe v. Wade being overturned so shortly before the election did make things more difficult for pro-life candidates. Because even if you go back to just 2021 in Virginia, when Governor Glenn Youngkin won his upset against former Governor Terry McAuliffe, Terry McAuliffe spent a large amount of that campaign uh, talking about Glenn Youngkin's position on abortion because he is pro-life. And yet that didn't factor heavily into the race just because abortion wasn't really at top of mind like it is now after that Supreme Court decision. Mm. And explain to me a little bit more about these ballot initiatives and what your take is. Now, California, Michigan, and Vermont voted to enshrine abortion rights in their constitution. And that wasn't too surprising. Those states are very pro-abortion. But these pro-life-leaning states, Montana and Kentucky, whose voters failed to pass ballot initiatives that were designed to protect unborn babies. I mean, what went wrong in these two states? And what does it say about where our country is headed on this issue? Yeah, I think just when we look at um, the general electorate, even in uh, states that tend to be more pro-life, what you typically hear from people is they don't like all-or-nothing measures. They prefer um, maybe a 15-week ban or a heart 
heartbeat bill, um, these types of measures, because they're mostly concerned about what happens in the case of a mother's life being threatened or rape or incest. And I think there's a lot of misinformation coming from the media on these issues. Um, right after Roe v. Wade was overturned, we heard a lot from the left-wing media claiming that women were going to be penalized for having miscarriages or if they um, had a life-threatening situation or an unviable pregnancy, that they would be punished and accused of having um, an abortion. And so I think voters maybe had that on their mind when they look at whether or not abortion is going to be outright banned. They don't think about whether or not exceptions are included. Um, so that would be, I think, the biggest reason why those measures failed. But moving forward, I, I think it doesn't you know, bode well for um, society just in terms of Obviously, we want to end the murder of children, and if we can't get the voters on our side, that's a huge problem. But I do think that this will re-energize the pro-life movement and hopefully um, lead them to getting creative and working even harder to inform voters and to try to spread that message of love. So um, I, I view this more of, of an opportunity than as a setback. Mm. Well, I appreciate your take on that and for all of your great analysis. Thanks so much for joining me, Amber Athey of The Spectator. Perhaps the most frightening threat to the lives of moms and their babies is the growing prevalence of dangerous chemical abortion drugs all over America and the world. Just to make sure we're all caught up, President Biden has recklessly approved and promoted abortion by mail as a top priority throughout his term. Even his own Department of Health and Human Services has admitted that the mass production of these pills could lead to dangerous, uncontrollable situations. These drugs are even being smuggled illegally across the border and sold to vulnerable women. The Charlotte Lozier Institute's Tessa Longbonds is one of the leading experts on this matter. We now welcome Tessa Longbond, Senior Research Associate at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Tessa, thanks for joining me. You know, this issue of miscoded abortions is not something that we often hear about when we talk about the chemical abortion issue. Could you explain for us what exactly that is? Yes, this is just another example of the abortion industry trying to hide the truth about the risks of chemical abortion, mm -hmm. and it's women who pay the price. So these are women who went to the emergency room after having an abortion, and for multiple reasons, perhaps they misled their doctors, perhaps a pro-choice doctor didn't report it, the complication correctly, or perhaps somebody made a mistake, but their abortions were miscoded as natural miscarriages. And what we found is that this can impact the type of care and treatment that women receive. In a groundbreaking first of its kind study, we looked at uh, women who had gone to the emergency room following abortion, and we found that by 2015, which was the most recent year of data in our data set, 60 percent of chemical abortion-related emergency room visits were miscoded as miscarriages. Mm, that is so tragic. And, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about how dangerous chemical abortions are. But what other uh, risks are women open up to when their doctor or whoever's treating them doesn't know that they've had an abortion? For this group of women who went to the emergency room after an abortion, women whose chemical abortions were miscoded had double the risk of being admitted to the hospital for surgery to complete the abortion mm. and significantly increased risk of multiple hospitalizations. Mm. And in fact, the FDA tells abortion providers to remind women to take information with them if they need to go to the emergency room so that doctors know how to treat them and give them the help that they need. And if a woman doesn't share with her 
doctor what's happening, she can be at risk of not getting the care she needs in a timely manner. Mm, so unfortunate. And you know, there are recent pieces in the mainstream media at New York Magazine, Daily Coast, other, other mainstream media sources that are saying, you know, there's really no medical reason to, to let your doctor know that you've had an abortion. What's your response to that claim? It is irresponsible and dangerous to tell someone to lie to their doctor. Abortion advocates like to present this advice as benefiting women, but in reality, it only benefits and enables the abortion industry at the expense of women's health and safety. Mm. This is yet another example of the abortion industry putting profits ahead of human lives, and it's putting women at risk. So what's being done about this? Is there anything that we can do to remedy the situation? Is, is anybody doing anything? The most important thing is education. Women deserve to know the truth about chemical abortion and the risks it entails. And so, since this is a growing issue, we're trying to spread the word at Charlotte Lozier Institute, and we want to make sure that the general public, women who are considering abortion, doctors, uh, the media are aware of the risks and what's going on. So, mm. we just really encourage people to educate themselves so that they can present accurate information to people who are looking for the facts. The work you're doing is so important. We're very thankful for you. Tessa Longbonds of the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, we take a tally of the overall disappointing and problematic leadership of our so-called Catholic president, Joe Biden. And we look back on an inspiring interview with Dr. John Bruchalski, an abortionist turned pro-life OBGYN whose new book shares his story of mercy and redemption. Welcome back to this special edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. President Joe Biden is our nation's second Catholic president, but has frequently gone against our church's teachings on abortion. That is this week's Speak Out segment. Biden has a less than perfect historical record when it comes to the issue of abortion, having abandoned his support for the Hyde Amendment and turned his back on pro-life Americans on the campaign trail in 2020. But his actions in 2022 have been particularly egregious. The day Roe v. Wade fell, he insulted women everywhere by emphasizing that he thinks it's impossible for them to thrive without the, quote, right to kill their child. In that same speech, he declared war against half the country, who was pro-life, when he said, this is not over. He then doubled down on his support for a bill that would make abortion on demand until birth the law of the land. But that's not all. When pregnancy centers were violently attacked and the bodies of babies potentially born alive after failed abortions were discovered, he weaponized the Department of Justice and ordered them to ignore these heinous crimes. And in the name of, quote, democracy, he assembled an abortion task force at the highest levels of government. Can we even call this leadership? As we embark on a new year, let's continue to pray for the conversion of President Biden for the sake of all Americans, especially unborn babies. Many people who claim to be medical professionals say that, quote, women will die without the ability to kill their own children. Thankfully, some doctors can see through the hypocrisy of such a claim. One of them is Dr. John Bruchalski, who sat down with me when his new book launched to discuss his journey from abortionist to head of one of the leading pro-life conglomerates, the Tepeyac Center. The Tepeyac Center is just one of the thousands of life-affirming care centers that have continued to flourish in this post-Roe world. 
Right, we are here with Dr. John Bruchowski of the Tepeyac Center. He is the author of the new book, Two Patients, My Conversion from Abortion to Life-Affirming Care. Dr. John, thanks for joining me this morning. Oh, Prudence, it is a blessing to be here with you. It's a blessing to have you here. And you began your book, congratulations on your new book, by the way. You began it really by talking about a medical misjudgment that happened in the delivery room and sort of spurred your conversion. Would you share what happened with us um, in that moment? Uh, sure. Um, the misjudgment was taking a good history and physical that all doctors should do. This was absolute, palpable cognitive dissonance. I was a second-year resident in a OBGYN training program, so we learned to do abortions at all times for whatever reasons. I wanted to be the best I could be, and so that's where I was during the daytime. However, as God is always a funny guy, he had me working at a pregnancy center at night, Evangelical, First Assembly of God. Mm -hmm. And we were praying to show people that there was an option other than abortion. So can you imagine that was unbelievable? And then in labor and delivery that night, in one room, the mom wanted the baby. So I took a good history and did everything I could to keep the baby inside alive. But in the next room, because the mom didn't want it, I didn't take a good history because it wasn't wanted. I broke the water, gave her medicine to deliver her baby. I delivered the baby. It looked a little big. I either could have suffocated it because it was born alive, or I threw it on the scale, and I did toss it. It was over 500 grams, and I had to call in the neonatal intensive care doctors. So here I am split between life and death, being the best doctor I could be. I didn't take a good history. The baby was farther along. And in walked the neonatal doctor and said, why are you treating my patients as tumors? Come to me tomorrow, have some coffee, because you're better than this. And that's what started it. It was the facts of OBGYN wanting to have abortion as part of good health care. But then someone stopped me in my tracks and confronted me. That's that moment that I had to respond to. And Dr. John, praise God that that conversion began in that moment. But talk to me about um, how the scar of abortion has impacted your life. So the scar of abortion is now a scar. It's not a wound anymore because of Jesus's mercy. So once again, I grew up in a great Catholic family. We said the rosary every morning, but I was a man pleaser. I wasn't a God fearer. I wanted to get along, status quo, be friends. Everything's okay. God's love, it's mercy, relativism, scientism. Don't worry about that, John. There's many ways to God. God understands, he's merciful. There was no mention of justice. And yet, as you do more and more abortions and you have to count body parts, and then you start killing sick children in the wombs of their mother, Prudence, the pain, the hardness of heart, the sharpness, it's the opposite of being an excellent doctor. Mm. And for 50 years now, we've had abortion on demand as the foundation of excellent 
healthcare. And now you use your talents as an OBGYN at the Tepeyac Center, which you run. It's a pro-life uh, center where you offer from start to finish everything that a mother needs, an expecting mother. Talk to me about the services you provide there. So, so we put the name Tepeyac in it against all marketing odds because Tepeyac is hard to spell. Nobody knows what it is. It's the hill on which Our Lady appeared to Juan Diego, right? Yes. I put it in there because the pressures in medicine and the pressures in life are to go woke and broke spiritually. We don't believe that murdering and killing life or always pitting mom against the baby, oh, we gotta kill the baby to save you, wrong answer. We've been treating miscarriages and ectopics and all the conditions of OBGYN for about 28 to 29 years without having to resort to elective abortion, never. And that has attracted, you know, we're still in business after 28 years and it's very hard because we, you have to pray for us and we have to pray for you because there are centers growing across the country, but the pressures against them are unbelievable. So I would recommend to your audience, pray for healthcare providers, physicians and all the rest every day. So that, that power of loving the patient but hating the disease and knowing that medicine is an act of mercy that's what's going to stand up to the hatred and to the bitterness and to the pain of trying to be the best patient you can be, the best mom you can be. And Dr. John, very briefly before we finish, I did just want to speak about how your work is becoming harder. You know, with the midterm elections coming up, the fact that Roe versus Wade has been overturned is really intensifying debate on both sides. How have you seen that translate to your work at the Tepeyac Center? So, at the Tepeyac Center, they are still doing what they always do. I've had to move on to be president of Divine Mercy Care. So what's happening is we have an opportunity right now to say the word abortion, because the other side doesn't want to say it. We can say the word abortion, and we can reclaim so much of medicine right now. So Divine Mercy Care is not only raising alms for Tepeyac's care of the underserved, but we're also teaching medical students and residents and college, and college students and other doctors who are just burned out and, and disappointed in what medicine has become. So this idea of medicine as an act of mercy, it's about teaching, assisting, and accompanying people, whether they're patients or providers, through this challenging time and maybe help them see there's a better way. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do. It's so needed. We're so glad to have you here, and congratulations on your new book, Dr. Oh, John Bruchowski. Oh, Prudence, thank you so, so much. God bless you. God bless you. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Until next time, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. You can also send us a message by emailing ProLifeWeekly at EWTN.com. We love to hear from you. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.